0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. This is our annual Thanksgiving show. Uh, I think our sixth one, in fact, and. Uh, in keeping what's, what's become sort of a holiday tradition, we're going to air in our second segment today one of our favorite comedic bits. And I wish we could take credit for this one, but in fact, the good people over at This American Life, Ira Glass in particular, joined by author Jack Hitt, turned out this piece on failure that, uh, well, uh, if you heard it before, I imagine you'll agree that it's worth hearing again. If you haven't heard it, well, you're in for a treat. Stay tuned for that in our second segment today. Anyway, we always want to put a good in word for those of you who are listening locally here because it means that uh, you are on the job, wherever it may be. And I know over the years I've worked uh, certainly my share of Thanksgiving and uh, Christmas and numerous other holidays. So we salute those of you who are, uh, you know, in the firehouse, in the police station, uh, manning your post on this Thanksgiving Day because, of course, uh, someone has to do that 365 days out of the year. And for those listening overseas, and and we're increasingly aware that there are quite a few of you, uh, you may be unfamiliar with the American traditional Thanksgiving holiday, which I think I'll try to take a whack at summarizing in one minute. In the early 1600s, there were numerous colonies formed in the New World from people fleeing persecution in Europe. One such colony of Puritans wound up near Plymouth, Massachusetts. They were, I believe, originally headed for a colony in Virginia, and upon landing in the barren New England landscape, I believe, the first thing they did was stone the navigator. The Puritans were escaping religious persecution in Europe because they were, they were kind, of a, kind of a sourpuss bunch, if the truth be told. When the Puritans under Cromwell seized control of, uh, of uh, England, the first thing they did was close down all the theaters. They frowned upon dancing, drinking, reveling, smoking, Sexual intercourse for any purpose other than that of procreation. So, when it came to having fun, they were pretty much left with horseshoes, fasting, and coveting thy neighbor's goods. Given the terrible New England weather, the uh, Puritan settlers relied upon the kindness of the local Indians, who introduced them to corn, squash, and local seafood resources. But it wasn't a one way street. The settlers were able to take from the Indians the means for survival. But in return, they were able to offer Bible study and syphilis. And of course, once the Puritans uh, uh, were able to help themselves to the Indians' foodstuffs, they then decided to help themselves to the Indian lands. A habit they did finally give up when they reached the Pacific Ocean. But it was a great moment for religious freedom when these Puritans came to America to, to practice their religion as they saw fit. And of course, anyone who didn't agree with them was then banished. Actually, actually, everything you've just heard, I, I made up. But I, I think in its own small way, is somehow not that far from the truth. Let's begin the program as we like to do with On This Date in History, which in our case today is November 27th. It was on this date in 43 BC, following the death of Julius Caesar, that Octavian, Antony, and Lepidus formed the Second Triumvirate. Now allied, they moved to attack and defeat the forces of Brutus and Pompeius. This was not long after the Warrenus Commission investigated the death of Julius Caesar and concluded it was the work of a lone nut, despite rumors of a second knife. And it was on this fateful date, November 27th in 1093 in Clermont, France, that Pope Urban II, responding to phony rumors of atrocities in the Holy Land, makes an appeal to the Christian faithful to wrest Jerusalem from the Muslims, which gave rise to that vast series of fiascos known as the Crusades. On this date in 1826, the English pharmacist John Walker invents the first practical strike-anywhere friction match. He refused to patent the creation and basically bequeathed, bequeathed it as a gift to humanity. On this date in 1924, Macy's Department Store in New York City held the first Thanksgiving Day Parade down a two-mile stretch of Broadway. The event was created to boost holiday sales. With an audience of more than a quarter million people, it was subsequently declared an annual event, which has led over the decades to innumerable floats and helium-filled giant balloons shaped like underdog. And on this date in 1971, Mars 2 from the Soviet Union became the first spacecraft to land on Mars. Unfortunately, it was a crash landing. Our quote of the day comes from Andrew Carnegie, who once said, As I grow older, I pay less attention to what men say. I just watch what they do. Our quote of the day comes from Will Rogers, who once said, A holding company is a thing where you hand and accomplice the goods while the policeman searches you. Our stat of the day is that so far, more than 100 requests for presidential pardons have poured into the White House in the waning days of the Bush administration. Convicted criminals hope President Bush will wipe their records clean at the end of his term. The U.S. Constitution does give the president unchallenged power when it comes to granting a pardon. Among those seeking pardons are Olympic sprinter and steroid abuser Marion Jones and former junk bond king Michael Milken. Our faux news of the day comes from Andy Borowitz, as reprinted in The Humor Times. Headline, Palin hoped to be named ambassador to Africa, a darned important country, says governor. The Alaska governor confirmed today that she's reached out to the president-elect Obama's transition team to indicate her interest in being named ambassador to the nation of Africa. I've always been very, very interested in the nation of Africa, partly because of it being located where it is, she said. If you're standing in Africa and you look real close, you can see South Africa. Noted Borowitz, in other news from the Palin family, Bristol Palin's fiancé, Levi Johnson, said he was totally stoked <laughs> at the election results, calling the results definitely a game-changer for me. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for old jokes after a British publisher translated Philogelos, The Laugh Addict, a 1,600-year-old joke book from ancient Greece. One gag that presages the Monty Python's dead parrot sketch concerns a man who complains the slave he's just purchased has died. By the gods, replies the seller. When he was with me, he never did any such thing. And the only question is, how long before Robin Williams steals this material? It was, conversely, a bad week last week for sending in the clowns. After the New York Stock Exchange let two red-nosed bozos from the Big Apple Circus ring the opening bell in an attempt to add some levity to a gloomy bear market. The market closed down 337 points for the day. And it was a bad week last June for the U.S. Postal Service when it turned out that uh, the telephone number... Printed on the packaging for some postage stamps was printed up as 1-800-TRAMP-24 in place of 1-800-STAMP-24. Yes, the erroneous listing was for a phone sex number. And apparently no less than 4 million stamps contained this false packaging. You know, we haven't done the Harper's Index in quite a while, so let's pull some stats off of that, shall we? According to Harper's, the percentage by which the $750 billion bailout exceeded the total U.S. GDP of a century ago adjusted for inflation, 50%. Percentage by which it exceeded the entire cost of the New Deal, 33%. Factor by which it exceeds the total cost of the 1990 Savings and Loan bailout. That would be a factor of three. But here's my favorite. Ratio of the funds U.S. banks paid into the FDIC last year to those they received in ATM fees. The ratio would be one to one. All right, let's do some various news items. We reported a couple of weeks back about uh, this Nebraska law that allowed safe havens for uh, for parents to abandon their children. It was intended to be uh, a way of... Uh, of um, having newborn infants be cared for, but instead, uh, because there was a loophole in the law, parents were driving and dropping off their teenagers. And although it does give this correspondent uh, pause to contemplate the idea that a Davis mom may have heard about this through our program, well, that that, that is not unlikely you know, and I don't want to think about it, because a Davis mother last week drove 1,164 miles to leave her 14-year-old son at a hospital in Nebraska, according to Chelsea Fua, writing in the Sacramento Bee. Well, Nebraska authorities have declined to name the Davis boy or his mother, but uh, they've announced that uh, they've closed the loophole. You can only leave babies up to age 30 days now. It is curious to note that all of these local churches, and, well, nationwide churches that are so anti-abortion never seem to want to chip in to help the kids that uh, don't get aborted I've always found that to be a little odd and speaking of Christians how about this how about this item which which I must confess just just gives me a little twinge of pleasure citing economic hard times the prominent Christian activist group Focus on the Family last week announced the largest layoffs in its history nearly 150 employees out of a total of 1,150 will lose their jobs at the end of November while an additional 53 positions will go unfilled. Donations to the organization, founded in 1977 by religious broadcaster James Dobson, have fallen sharply in recent months. The group apparently also took a financial hit for it's spending half a million dollars to support California's Proposition 8, the anti-gay marriage initiative. Prop 8 certainly is an emotional issue, and I'm quite stunned by how it seems to be resonating in America. People are out in the streets... Being politically active over this. And and, and my question is, where were they four years ago and eight years ago when the national election was stolen? I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, we are completely in favor of political activism for uh, what people perceive to be a good cause. But frankly, this one's a little bit weird. The Sacramento News and Review, of course, we're big fans, but uh, we're not big fans of the fact that they published a list of people who donated money to the Yes on 8 cause. Is it news that, uh, that Adam so-and-so of a local pizza joint donated $150 to Yes on 8? Is it news that David, owner of a local market, donated $100 to Yes on 8? I mean, is it newsworthy? Is this something like, you know, someone's being shamed because they donated money to something that for whatever reason they believed in? In fact, to its credit, the the News Review published a letter from Gabriel McAuliffe on this very topic I think I'll quote from. Title, Supporting Prop 8 Isn't Hate. Regarding the H-List, which is what I just quoted from, I strongly take issue with your list tarring the people who contributed money toward yes on Proposition 8. Even if one disagrees with Prop 8, how can you list people with the headline, the H-8 List? When you may know next to nothing about these people's lives i would want to defend just one person and i will not name this person lest you vilify this person with another horrid article who i know is a decent and sincere person who gives his time to the community and gives generously to the poor those who are hungry thirsty with few clothes and lacking in shelter because there are people of conscience such as myself who would not support a legal definition of marriage other than that of one man and one woman we are to be tarred with accusations of hatred. Imagine, the people on that list may be responding to their consciences. How dare these people? We certainly agree that Mr. McAuliffe has a point. On a lighter note, I wanted to quote again from uh, the headline news section of the Humor Times, spe- specifically the following article. Obama begins planning transition to socialism, comma, communism. <laughs> Dateline Chicago With our dramatic victory in the polls on Election Day, we believe we have a mandate for a complete transition to a communist socialist system, which we will begin planning for immediately, said Barack Obama in a controversial speech. According to a central member of Obama's transition team, the plan will not disappoint the majority, who of course voted for socialism. One of our first steps will be to take an inventory of everybody's property, so we may get to decide who gets what. And, you know, we're not we're not big George Will fans on this program, but uh, in Will's column on the Washington Post, he had a pretty good line or two, noting that in the final days of the presidential race, the Republican ticket took to warning us of impending socialism under the Democrats. Well, if only someone had done that before the Republicans took over in 2000. Under the rules of self-described conservatives, the federal government produced a massive expansion of Medicare through the prescription drug entitlement program, billion-dollar subsidies to farmers and sugar producers, an auto industry on the dole, and nationalized banks. Republicans have brought about the largest expansion of the welfare state since Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. And Speaking of an auto industry on the dole, uh, the big three uh, CEOs of GM, Chrysler, and Ford would like $25 billion from us, the taxpayer. Thank you very much. And an even more conservative commentator than George Will, that'd be Michael Barone writing in National Review Online, said that even a whopping government loan won't save these fatally flawed businesses. For years, GM has been building uninspired, oversized cars that fewer and fewer people want. How will a bailout help? Weighing in on this matter was New Scientist magazine that said, Gas-guzzling Hummers and Cadillacs give the clear impression that General Motors and the rest of the U.S. automobile industry couldn't give a damn about climate change. By contrast, their Japanese rivals have innovated. They're pumping out fuel efficient small cars plus hybrids such as the Prius like nobody's business and consumers are snapping them up referring to GM, Ford and Chrysler the magazine said many observers are saying that perhaps it'd be better to let these dinosaurs die well that ain't going to happen they're in the too big to fail category in the eyes of the government but uh you know it is it is pretty amazing that um This domestic industry pretty much has been on the wrong side of of most uh, environmental, social, and safety issues now for about 40 straight years. Of course, the last time we noted in this program that industry was liable to get what it wanted from Congress, uh, by the time that words came out of my mouth, someone got on the phone to say, "Hey, you know, they just passed that. It'll probably happen again. I also want to, uh, want to comment on uh, Cosmo Garvin's article in the News and Review uh, from, a, from a couple weeks back, noting that a recession might just help transform the way Cat Sacramento grows. We've got to bring Cosmo back on the program. Uh, I like this opening paragraph. Remember when we used to worry about sprawl? Runaway growth was once a top concern for Sacramento residents, along with troublesome byproducts of traffic congestion, bad air, and the loss of quality farmland. We don't hear so much complaining about sprawl nowadays with the collapse of the housing bubble and the ensuing global financial crisis. After all, no economic growth means no development and no sprawl, right? Well, maybe not. But it has been pretty weird noticing that uh, the area here in Yolo County, Sacramento County, Butte County, and all points in between, seem to be based on this idea that as long as we're you know, building strip malls out in farmland, that we're all benefiting... This comes in no small part from the fact that you know economists are unable to really quantify how much better your life is when your lungs are not filled with smog. Anyway, we don't have time to go into this today, but we're going to see if we return to that article and get, bring Cosmo back on the show. All right, we're going to take a break here in a minute. Uh, before we go out, though, I want to note that it's somewhat disturbing that um, the idea of, of the nation's first puppy seems to be capturing the public imagination. I remember when uh, Bush 41 became president and someone did a survey about six months into that uh, ill-fated administration and noted that the White House first dog, Millie, had generated more publicity, more articles in the press than all of the president's cabinet members combined. One certainly hopes that history does not repeat itself. All right, final item from the miscellaneous file. We like to run down urban legends on this program. And while it's long been alleged that on his television program, You Bet Your Life, comedian Groucho Marx once made a comment, which is part of television history. Well, the thing is, people claim that this happened, and a lot of people claim that, well, this this didn't happen. I heard Groucho's announcer, George Fenneman, once, you know, saying that he, he wasn't sure this had actually happened. But the story was that a guest came on and said to, the, said to Groucho that he had, I think, nine children. Which prompted a response something along the lines of, really, nine children? Yes, yes, Groucho, said the man, I love my wife very much. Which caused Groucho to reply, well, I love my cigar too, but I take it out once in a while. I'm happy to report that uh, listener Jake called in some time back after I'd mentioned Groucho Marx in one program, to tell the tale of being a young lad perched in front of the television and hearing that exchange go down, something he found particularly hilarious because he got the joke. We accept that testimony as accurate and are stating for the record that in our opinion, that's exactly what happened on that You Bet Your Life program. Thanks for that, Jake, and thanks to all of you continue to send us letters and, and, and give us phone calls and keep us uh, you know, on the ball. Let's take a short break and come back with one of our favorite bits from National Public Radio. It's a classic. Stay tuned. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.